0: Have you heard of the hashtag Take3ForTheSea, which tells you to pick up at least three pieces of garbage every time you're on a beach, on a walk, or on a hike? Well, I get to talk to one of the co-founders of this, Tim Silverwood, who has now actually moved on to create the Ocean Impact Organization. Which is Australia's first ocean impact ecosystem and startup accelerator, helping people to start, grow, and invest in businesses that positively impact the ocean. So Tim actually does a much better job than me explaining this, but if you are someone with a fantastic idea, which is good for business and good for our oceans, stay tuned. We also chat about this crazy time that we're experiencing during quarantine, how important the ocean is for our mental health, a little bit about our journeys, and of course, um, the issues that are facing our Earth, which is not only plastic, but a lot of things that we cannot see or put our finger on. So thank you so much for joining me for this episode today. As always, it would mean the world to me if you could head on over to uh, oceanpancake.com and maybe get yourself a t-shirt, help support the cause, become a patron. Uh, Most of us are kind of struggling financially, potentially losing sponsorships, things like that. So it would mean the world to me if you could just help out with as little as $1 to help me keep providing education and science communication to you guys. Of course, I also hope you and your family are safe, that you are staying inside during this time, and you are using this time to do fun and productive things. Um, There are plenty of books and things like that you can check out, as well as podcasts. I have a whole heap of blog posts about suggestions on what to do, as an ocean lover during the quarantine period. Every day, there's a new news story about the crisis facing our ocean, whether it's the plastic issue, overfishing, pollution. If the oceans die, we die. Fortunately, we have plenty of environmental activists, marine conservationists, and eco-warriors who are out there every day fighting to protect our oceans and our Earth. On the Ocean Pancake Podcast, we're going to be hearing from some of them about how to decrease our environmental footprint, go plastic free, participate in ocean conservation, cleanups, and even maybe some marine science. So, welcome to the Ocean Pancake Podcast, where the goal is sustainability and living a turquoise life. My name is Kat Andrieskova, and I'm your host today. Let's get into this week's episode. with Tim Silverwood, who is a co-founder for Take Three for the Sea, and also the co-founder of Ocean Impact Organisation. Hi, Tim.
1: Hi, how are you?
0: I'm doing okay in this crazy time. How are you today?
1: (laughs) It is a crazy time indeed. Uh, We are right in the midst of this... global disruption uh i think it's um yeah it's a a peculiar time um don't know when people are going to be listening back to this episode but everyone will remember this experience uh and obviously we don't know yet what the the world is going to look like on the other side
0: yep that is the case it's currently april 1st uh for those of you guys who are listening now which might be in a week or a couple weeks and australia has just gone on to lockdown so both of us are kind of stuck in our respective states. So I'm in WA and Tim's in New South Wales. So it's um fun time.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was just sort of commenting before that we, you know, there's a lot about lockdown you can deal with, but don't take the ocean away from us uh, because I think uh, above all else, we need to make sure people have access to exercise and a rejuvenating mental health. So we need the ocean, right?
0: Yeah, that's That's definitely um, what we're arguing anyway. Uh, (laughs) Even though they've said, um, boaties, you know, keep your boats at home. And um, we are going to be arguing that for exercise sake, we can, I guess we can at least take a kayak out, right, and paddle out and do some snorkeling.
1: (laughs) As long as you can pull out your little note and say, I'm uh, exercising here, then I'd like to hope we can maintain those uh, very important activities that involve the ocean.
0: Definitely. But even though right now we cannot be in the ocean, uh, we can at least talk about the ocean. So it's good that we have platforms and that we can record this long distance through Zoom, um, even if we're both stuck inside and during quarantine.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let's embrace the technology that we have available and, um, and be agile, right? I think anyone who's working in the conservation space needs to be very reactive and able to navigate um, unforeseen barriers and circumstances. So that's certainly what I'm trying to do.
0: For sure. I think um, we're kind of used to it, but this is, this is a special circumstance indeed. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's get into the episode. Uh, as I start all of my episodes, I want to learn a bit more about you and kind of your journey on uh, how you came to love the ocean and start working in ocean conservation.
1: Yeah. Um, as a I was born up in far north Queensland in Cairns, so right on the doorstep to the Great Barrier Reef. Um, don't have a lot of memories of my first few years of life, but um, at about the age of three, I, I moved down to the central coast region of New South Wales, about an hour and a half north of Sydney. And it was probably that time I do start to have my first recollections of of going to the beach and exploring rock pools and just being uh, obsessed with this this giant mass that was entertaining, all-consuming, intimidating, all of those emotions. Um, And it's been a part of my life ever since. I started surfing and riding a bodyboard originally from probably about the age of 10. Weekends would be heading out with my you know, primary school friends chasing the shore breaks on our little Mac 77 bodyboards. And then eventually you grow up and one of your friends gets a, a licence. And so every morning before school, we had to venture about 15 minutes from our hinterland home in the bush to the beach. And, yeah, the ocean has just been a cornerstone of my existence. I've never really done too well when I've tried to live away from the ocean as I'm sitting to you right now, I can peek out my window and see the the Pittwater um, area of northern Sydney, and yeah, I just I, I need the ocean in my life, and I think we all need to understand that we all need the ocean to be healthy for our own uh, sustainability.
0: I was just recently um, reading this book called The Blue Mind, and it has this really interesting, like psychological and neurological um, explanation of how humans are just generally attracted to the ocean and the sea and how our health and mental health is somehow intrinsically connected with this massive body of water. So it's really cool to hear you bring that up.
1: <laughs> yeah, i actually, I'm looking at Blue Mind in my bookshelf, as you say that. Um, Wallace J. Nichols, great book and all the research that he's done and compiled upon that. I mean, the simple way of looking at it is that, you know, we all life on the planet came from the ocean and many of us rely upon the ocean for our own survival still and you know i think in australia it's something like over 80 percent of the population lives within 50 kilometers of the coastline so i think it's um you know most cultures out there um tend to have some connection and relationship to the sea and for me and for others it's uh it's it's strong and it's it's a, it's a prerequisite for living.
0: (laughs) I cannot even remember how I lived before I moved to Australia because I grew up in landlocked Switzerland. So I was surrounded by mountains rather than the ocean. But now, as you said, like I cannot imagine going away from it or how it would be to even be far away from the ocean.
1: Yeah. But in saying that, I think the the second best thing, and the only thing I think that is, has rivaled my attraction to the sea and surfing is getting into the mountains. And, and you know, you're still playing with water, just in a different mm-hmm. form um, when you get out there in the snow and, and get to experience those incredible natural settings and that exhilaration of, of something being bigger than you. You know, I think you feel small in nature and you feel small in the ocean. And they're two you know, very similar feelings.
0: Definitely. Uh, we kind of grew up with you know, these massive tracts of nature around us, and I, I don't know about you, but I definitely have been noticing, you know, the changes from when I was younger, going out hiking and everything like that. I know in Switzerland, we're struggling a lot with, like, glacier depletions, um, and they're worried about, you know, fresh water running out in Europe, because some of the glaciers have 40 percent of the potable water in, uh, for whole, a whole of Europe, Um, So those are some of the issues that they're struggling with there. But what have you been noticing um, that the ocean is struggling with that you've lived next to your whole life?
1: Oh gosh. Um, You know, the, the science is is so compelling when you look at the, the state of the oceans now and reflect back to what we knew about them only 50, a hundred years ago. So the rapid rate of change um, resulting from human abuses uh, of the ocean are really quite profound. In terms of my personal experiences and encounters, um, obviously issues like plastic, I can remember it being a sort of quite a freak experience to encounter plastic when I was surfing as a teenager and, and now it's in, it's impossible to to not go looking for plastic and, um, and not find it. It's, it's everywhere. Um, certainly interactions with some wild creatures in the area where I grew up is pretty clear that there's less and less. Um, notable exception probably being the humpback whales that migrate up the east coast of Australia. They've definitely increased in recent years, which is one um, positive that we can focus on. But yeah, I think um, for me, the real shock and attraction for me to get into marine conservation did come from traveling throughout other parts of the world, particularly surfing through Indonesia and backpacking through Southeast Asia and India. That was when, to me, it all coalesced around the the blatant and obvious signs of physical pollution. Uh, a lot of the pollutants that impact our planet are invisible, right? You don't really notice them until the impacts show their show their faces but the rubbish that i was encountering whilst surfing or exploring these regions was just like duh like humans way up to yourself you just you can't just (laughs) chuck this stuff and expect it to just go away like that's just abhorrent so i think it was a bit of a a strange realization for me because i'd gone to university and studied science and sustainability and so i had all this theoretical understanding of the systems changes that we needed to adopt i found it really quite surprising that my focus ended up becoming something so obvious as oh stop polluting the planet with rubbish Mm -hmm. but when you think about it if we can't do that one right then what help what hope is there for us to do all the more complicated stuff so that's why i guess my focus became um, plastics for a while there because i could just see that if humanity couldn't figure out how to fix this obvious problem then we couldn't expect them to be able to fix the more complicated and insidious and hidden problems.
0: And I do think that travel does help to show what an obvious problem it is. Cause for many of us who grew up in, you know, Western societies and places like Australia or Switzerland, we've been quite sheltered from, you know, the realities, especially in Europe. I found, you know, there's no trash to be seen. There's excellent recycling facilities. The, you know, the governments pay a lot of money to have cleaners clean the streets even in nature, you will hardly see any trash. But then as you said, if you go to Indonesia or Thailand, or um, I lived in Comoros, Africa for eight months, you know, there you're walking down any beach and there's just piles and piles of this trash. You're swimming and you are getting trapped in the plastic bags. And it's just really eye-opening like, oh, we may not see it every day, but it's definitely there. Um, and I'm kind of glad to see how much this has come to the forefront in um, the popular media in the past two years, that now even in countries where it hasn't been such an apparent problem, uh, we now know about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's that gives me great hope and, and great satisfaction to have been a player in this movement that, you know, it took a long time. Um you know, I joined the the fight for awareness on plastic pollution, you know, physically and actively around 2009. But people have been fighting for this since the 50s and the 60s. It's been a long-fought battle. Um, and obviously, in recent years, the number of performers who've joined the stage to call for this, um, you know, this, this chorus of action has been huge. And so... It's been a really interesting um, yeah, world to be a part of, and I, I'm really interested to see how we can take learnings from that particular ocean problem and start a bigger conversation now about, well, it's not just plastic, right? So there's actually you know, quite a few people, myself included, who do feel, on one hand, extremely satisfied and proud that there's so much mainstream awareness around plastic pollution now, but on the other hand, a little bit guilty because there's so many other problems that humans are causing on our ocean, and they all need the same mainstream attention that plastics now have.
0: That's true. Um, when you said you kind of joined the fight, um, was that when you began a take three for the sea?
1: Yeah, essentially, uh, 2009 was when I uh, met Amanda and Roberta, uh, the two ladies who already had the the idea for take three for the sea. Um, I was sort of just stepping onto this train to, to, to start my activism. I'd done all my travels. I, you know, my life circumstances just meant it was the right time for me to get into this activism and advocacy. Um, and then when I met Mandy and Roberta and they had this great idea, it just seemed so obvious that that was that was the first destination on this journey. Um, and yeah, ended up spending 10 years um, building this nonprofit organization that, um, you know, I was really proud to lead until, until March of this year when I, when I stepped down as CEO to, to start my, my new focus, which is this organization um, called OIO, or Ocean Impact Organization.
0: So before we talk about ocean impact organization that I'm really excited to hear about, um, could you just share with us, what was the mission for take three for the sea and what did this 10 years of working with it kind of um, show you or teach you?
1: Yeah, the mission was pretty straightforward to begin with. It was each of us, three co-founders and everyone who was advising us this, this passionate realization that, plastic pollution was becoming its own pandemic and that it was pretty clear that we all needed to do something to, to stem the tide. So take three for the sea. What really makes it special is the, is the simple call to action. So um, of course our our mission was much more complicated. We wanted to advocate the oceans and we wanted to, deliver education programs, but the call to action was just so clear. You, anyone, anywhere, anytime can simply take three pieces of plastic with you when you leave the beach or the park or a mountain reserve, like anywhere you are, you can actually be a, you can make a difference was the kind of call that we used to, to shout. So we, um, yeah, we started running education programs in schools and developing local um, relationships with local councils and various governments. We won a $50,000 grant from Taronga Zoo and we just started building this organisation. Um, and where the organisation is at now is 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 pretty impressive. I mean, the, the Take Three for the Sea uh, hashtag, you trace that on Instagram, you can see it's been used in over 129 countries and this community of people who adopt this behavior are responsible for removing over 10 millions of 10 million pieces of trash each year we've delivered education programs to over 300,000 students and so the results of this organization are really impressive um and obviously we've helped to trigger um a lot of political changes too right there's the bans on plastic bags in New South Wales. There's all sorts of policies in the works. There's recycling initiatives like the 10 cent refund on bottles and cans. And so we, we, we played a big role, I suppose, in, in, in galvanising this attention and building this movement to tackle plastic pollution in Australia and also all around the world.
0: So the education programs and the hashtag take 3 for the sea and getting people to get out there to actually do this, you know, that's, that's absolutely fantastic. But it's something I feel that a lot of people understand. I was curious, how did you manage to actually push through, or be part of pushing through these issues that the governments are now doing, like the plastic bag bans and that? How, how does that happen? How does that look like?
1: Yeah, we were fortunate right from the very early day of our existence, we were introduced to an alliance of organisations called the Boomerang Alliance, and they still exist. There's about 50 or more organisations that join this rather loose-fitting alliance. And the whole idea of this alliance is that we all agree to um, put our energy and our focus towards a very clear campaign. And thankfully, the alliance itself is organised and administered by very experienced and seasoned environmental campaigners. Because Mm -hmm. I think everyone out there who has a particular passion might think, oh, well, we've simply got to change the law and maybe you set up a change.org petition and you get it out there. And it's it's, galvanising people's attention is one thing. Actually playing the political game of... Um, of pushing policy across the line is a much more complicated matter so I think it's really important like do not don't I'm not telling you not to go and start the petition and galvanize the community but if you are trying to see a change in legislation reach out to others who are working on the same issue Mm -hmm. Um, combine your efforts but also really try and tease out who are the people that know political campaigning because it's it's a science in itself. Uh, campaigning and lobbying is a a complicated beast and best left to the ones that know how to do it well.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I, um, personally definitely do not want to get into politics, but I do know like one of my friends, Scott Wallace, he just ran, um, for Gold Coast, AJP, not sure how it works. I will learn once I can vote in Australia. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I remember talking to him a couple of years ago and, you know, he's a big shark advocate and a big ocean advocate as well. And he was like, oh, well, I'm studying law now and I'm going to get into politics. And I remember thinking like, why would you do that? That sounds horrible. Um, but just as you're saying, you know, to it's one thing getting, you know, the population or people moving in, in a certain direction, but it's a whole other thing to get these laws passed. And we have to have people who are actually in in government or in these areas who know what they're doing. So that's that's really cool to hear from you. Do you have any like specific places where people can look to find um you know who to contact or is it just your local council or how does it I work?
1: More thinking about if there's if there's issues that you're particularly focused on mm-hmm. then look I suppose to others in in that ecosystem who are who have been around longer who have got maybe a little bit more experience under their belt doesn't mean that you need to go straight into forming a coalition or an alliance with them but at least sit across the table with them have a coffee with them when you're allowed to be in the same room together (laughs) and um and just learn uh and, and you'll soon find out well who's been doing it longer maybe they've tried a strategy in the past that didn't get anywhere you just want to understand the the lay of the land um, before you go exerting all your much needed energy on a campaign or project where um where it may not achieve the greatest uh possible you know end game and outcome
0: that's very good advice um because it's true because these people would have been working on it from as you said the 50s and 60s and surely have tried many things Um, so it's good to hear what's been working and what hasn't. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So after uh, your 10 incredible years of work with Take Three for the Sea, um, you have moved on um, to form the Ocean Impact Organization. Can you share with us what that is and what that does?
1: Yeah, sure. So I guess a bit of background there is, um, you know, really proud once again of all the Take three has been able to achieve in the role that I performed there, but probably for the last year and a half or so, I've just been thinking about what next. Um, I've got a milestone birthday this year. I turned 40 and I am just reflecting back on this entire decade of my 30s that I invested in take three and it was great, but I wouldn't, I wanted to sort of know well, what next. And so ocean impact organization um, it's, it's, it's the same goal, like we're obviously still trying to protect planet ocean from unnecessary impacts by humans. Um, but the tools that we'll use with Ocean Impact Organisation are quite different. Whereas Take Three for the Sea was about educating and inspiring this big crowd of people who, you know understand the problem of plastics, do something about it and therefore advocate for the kind of future that they want. Ocean Impact Organisation is focused on the power of good business. Uh, I think I, in my most left-leaning activist days, was quite anti-capitalist and kept feeling like, you know, big business and multinational corporations, all they're ever going to do is screw the planet and screw people for profit. But if you look at where we are now, there's a whole new generation of businesses that are trying to do good. They're trying to be impact-driven businesses. They are conscious capitalists. They basically say that in the world of the future, of course, we're going to have business, and of course, we're still going to have big business, but we need to have businesses that are much more conscious. So just to wrap that all up, um, Ocean Impact Organisation essentially exists to help people start, grow, and invest in businesses that positively impact the ocean. So we're looking for anyone who's, uh, you know, an established business with a focus on improving the state of the oceans, or maybe you're an entrepreneur or a new startup or a researcher. If you've got an idea that can commercialize, that can help us treat the ocean better, um, but also make good money, to redefine the way we do business on this planet then that's what oio is all about so we um yeah we call ourselves australia's first ocean impact ecosystem and startup accelerator so it's a big 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 project that i'm super excited about because i feel like i can spend the next 10 years of my life really understanding the power of good business which i think is really critically important if we are going to have a sustainable future on this beautiful pale blue dot that we all share.
0: That's beautiful. And I think it is so important to, you know, not necessarily keep, keep business separate from conservation and positive impacts on our planet because unfortunately money is, you know, what makes the world go around as, as they say. And um, it's better to have businesses which function well, together with ocean kind of missions rather than completely separate Um, do you have any examples of big businesses that are doing these things well
1: um big businesses you know lots of i suppose corporates are doing a lot of changes to the way they do business um you know if you look at um gosh there's so many out there i mean you could look at um, Adidas, for example, and the collaboration they're doing with Parley for the Ocean, you know, it started with a very, very clear branded mission to attach Adidas, this huge brand name, to this problem of plastic pollution. Yeah. But what has actually happened as a result of that is that the entire supply chain of Adidas has been transformed. So they, to make sure that the the public the consumers gave them that endorsement that okay we believe you that this campaign is not just blue washing Mm -hmm. they actually came out and said well we're going to make sure that by 2025 our entire supply chain is free from new petroleum so that's a pretty powerful thing to do right this is a massive company with a huge plastic footprint now saying well we're not going to use any new virgin petroleum by 2025. Um, so that'd be an example, I suppose, of a big multinational, but what I suppose I'm really intrigued by is, is the disruptive innovators and entrepreneurs out there who are going to come and do things completely differently and, and shake some of the, the bad actors, um, off their perch. So, I mean, obviously you could look at things like, you know, Airbnb or, um, or Uber as one of these disruptive technologies, even right now, all these tech platforms coming and taking away market share from the big guys like Zoom or others. So I want to see the people out there who've got a vision of what the world could look like in 10 or 20 years time. And sure, they might have a really hard road ahead of them, but they are focused, they are firm on their vision, and they want to believe that we can have this beautiful, not just a tokenistic sustainable relationship with our planet but even better be regenerative Mm -hmm. we've gone past the point of now saying hey just just plateau your negative impact and and slow down like no we actually need you to flip it on its head and be regenerative like who can create a you know a new clothing company that's made out of who knows like a, a polymer from seaweed that overtakes the use of polyester clothing whilst drawing down millions of tons of, of carbon from the oceans and reducing acidification. Like we want the big disruptive thinkers because they're the ones that need all the help they can get to be successful quickly.
0: That's amazing. Um, and I didn't actually know that Adidas did make that claim for 2025, but it's good. To see that um, you know, because of the public is kind of catching on to greenwashing or bluewashing, that um, they are taking care of their whole supply chain, because it is too easy to just you know slap a <laughs> slap a oh this is eco um, thing on the packet when in reality it's not the case. Um,
1: totally, and that's a you know, that's and that's a been quite a big criticism of um, of Parley and of other. Collaborations out there where you know you, you, you smell a rat, right? You sort of look at it and go, Is this really legitimate? Is this mm-hmm. really what it cracks up to be? And that's why I think, um, Cyril from Parlay, I think he's his real genius. If it all comes off, is that he gives these big companies both. He says, Look, I'll give you all of that glossy, you know, um, marketing that could very well be blue wash. But you must meet this strict criteria, and so you know Corona avoiding a lot of plastic in their supply chain. Adidas doing the same thing. Like you have that. Like I'll give you all the merit, the benefits, but you simply must meet this criteria. That's when beautiful business can happen.
0: Yeah, I I saw a a few months ago that Corona created these cans which can like be fully stacked and actually attached to themselves to avoid any packaging in terms of. You know six-pack rings or anything like that but i haven't actually seen it come out anywhere so i'm just wondering you know what yeah, what's happening with it. these kinds of things because i feel like there's quite often this big boom and you know the youtube videos or whatever marketing comes up and then
1: we're yeah. still waiting <laughs> yeah yeah well um yeah i don't know with that particular instance i don't think i've actually seen that one but you know, it might have just been a test to market type thing, see what mm-hmm. the appetite is. Maybe the technology was still very early days, and they've got some more R and D to get through. But um, you know, it's a kind of example where would would they have even been exploring that type of innovation, were it not for the value of this partnership with someone like Parlay? So you've um, you know you've really got to dive deep into some of these relationships and and tease out. Um, you know, where it's at now, where it's heading in the future, and, and how we can all be involved as consumers to, to help that, that vision become a reality.
0: Um, so, considering you do have all this knowledge about um, companies and things, what can consumers do to make sure that where they're buying products from aren't just greenwashed or bluewashed? Like, are there certain things they can look out for, or where will they find out um, about that?
1: Yeah, good question. I mean, um, the simplest thing, I suppose, is to I label myself, and I try and get others to do the same of just being that conscious consumer. Like just making sure that when you are going into a purchase or you know doing some investigation, that you know you put on that little hat that says I'm going to be conscious here. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask myself the the important questions about well, where did this product come from? Like who made it? Where was it made? um, What's it made out of? What are those raw raw materials? Like, just doesn't mean you have to spend days and hours, um, you know, trawling through reports to find some information. But just put yourself in that position. I'm just going to be a little bit more alert, aware, and then you're going to find out. Okay, well, how's it going to get to me? How long am I going to own it for? Can it be repaired? What happens with this product? When i don't want it anymore has it got enough <clears throat> resale value that i can pass it on to the next person or is it just going to go to landfill like what um can you do with it and i think that's um, <clears throat> something simple that we can all do is just try and be a little bit more conscious of our decisions because when you do that quite often you'll get to question you know uh, three or four and go you know what actually i don't really that doesn't sit well with my values so i might keep looking or i might not even purchase that in the first place
0: Mm -hmm. yeah because definitely because purchasing less is one of the best things we can do to kind of (laughs) decrease the environmental impact are there um, any companies or products that you're aware of which have um, as you said um, uh, beyond a sustainable kind of um, approach now I'm blanking on the word you said. Right? Starts with R.
1: Regenerative. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, um, there's. I know there's companies that make uh, even types of paint um, and also sort of rendering materials out of natural clays that you know you could paint your house or render a wall with a substance that actually draws down carbon out of the atmosphere um i think there's lots of you know seaweed products that are out there now entering Mm -hmm. the market that obviously by simply uh harvesting this fast growing seaweed from um ocean systems you're helping to sequester carbon um there'd have to be lots and lots of agricultural products that are going to be doing the same i'm trying to think about sort of consumer products that are regenerative by design Uh, i'm blanking out a little bit but i'm definitely sure there will be and i mean um i just think this idea of being regenerative it it can even be part of the sort of the business model in itself Mm -hmm. as well right so the product which could be say you know like the tom's model of of buying a pair of shoes and then a pair of shoes will be provided to someone in need you could see a product of the future saying well yeah sure you are buying our eco product, but we're actually going to use the the proceeds or the profits from this product to actually invest back in to regenerative agriculture or regenerative um, you know marine permaculture projects or various things like that. so it can be the the item itself could be regenerative or it could be the business model itself that could be have a regenerative component.
0: yeah, I'm definitely looking forward until um I mean. until we have like a new stamp in the shops which is regeneratively grown you know like regenerative agriculture i did work in like a regenerative agriculture agroforestry farm in greece for a couple months last year um and that was just one of the most eye-opening experiences about how destructive our current you know commercial agriculture systems are Um, So I can't wait to actually see that hit the mainstream more and being able to make those choices in the supermarkets or farmer's markets or wherever it is, because it is, especially in Australia, it's one of the leading countries in terms of permaculture and um, these beyond sustainable practices when it comes to food.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Wow. Well, you have definitely uh, opened my eyes to so many things and I'm so excited to see Um, the companies and organizations that you guys support with ocean impact organization. Um, So if there are people who are interested in, you know, being entrepreneurs or creating some of these disruptive technologies, what, what's your advice to them? Like, should, should they reach out if they have an idea? Should they flesh it out? What's the, what's the go?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Look, we're definitely, definitely taking expressions of interest at the moment. So if you head to our website, ocean dash impact, org. you can um, submit a form there to say so we've got you on file. Um, we had hoped that we'd run our first accelerator program uh, by the end of the year. But of course um, they've had to be scrapped due to the, the current state of the world. But yeah, yeah. we are looking at running uh, a virtual um, accelerator slash slash sort of pitch fest um, in the coming months. So that'll be a chance if you've got a great idea, You'll be able to submit that and we'll have a panel of experts to sort of trawl through these great ideas and we'll be celebrating um, some of those that we think are really really inspirational and really really exciting for the future but yeah like I said we um we are the only group really doing this in Australia that's focused on uh making a positive impact on the ocean so yeah, I really encourage you if this is speaking your language then get in touch with us because um we're going to be running lots of exciting things in the in the coming years
0: well i'm definitely very excited to keep updated with what you guys are doing um, before before we end this podcast i uh, want to ask you the question that i ask all of my guests which is what would be the one piece of advice you would give people who want to help protect our oceans
1: given the way the conversation started today i think i'll have to revert back to that and just um remember your elders um, that have been here longer than you um i think a big part of the you know accelerating and incubating good ideas it all comes down to mentors and so a mentor doesn't need to be some elusive figure that you romanticize about being able to meet and share a coffee with a mentor can be someone completely unexpected who just happens to have a little bit of insight or wisdom that helps you at that particular point in time. So back to so much of what we were speaking about before and saying, you might have a passion project. You might sort of be there thinking that your ideas are the best ideas. They may very well be, but why not go and share them with someone who's been around a little bit longer because they might just give you some advice, which makes you realize um, how you can tweak, adjust, optimize, scale back, whatever it might be. But yeah, speak to your elders. And they may not even even be older than you. They might be younger than you, but I'm going to use that expression (laughs) broadly. (laughs) Speak to your elders.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Is there any kind of last thoughts you'd like to share or where can we find you on all the social medias and that?
1: Yeah, great. So I'm Tim Silverwood. You can find me just by typing that into your social channels. OceanImpact.org is our handle for that one. And Take Three for the Sea is pretty easy to find as well.
0: Definitely. And remember, guys, Take Three for the Sea uh, next time you're out walking or doing your crucial exercise um (laughs) you can always you can still take three for the seat even during this quarantine time
1: (laughs) yeah or more
0: or more always helps i try and bring a bag everywhere i go but my bags always break i need a better system
1: (laughs) thanks so much kat
0: thank you so much Thank you so much, Tim, for joining me today. It was so good to chat to you and I look forward to hearing what the Ocean Impact Organization gets up to in the coming months. I also want to say thank you to all you guys who have been listening because this wouldn't be possible without you. And of course, Graham Mose, which is the mind behind the music in this podcast. If you guys live in Brisbane or actually anywhere in the world now, because we're all quarantined, um, you can probably find him on the internet and watch a live show, buy a CD, support the arts, especially during this time when uh, musicians can no longer have live gigs. So yeah, hope you're staying well, hope you're staying safe, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.